Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. No, no change, change without, without struggle. struggle. No, no one, one in power, power ain't giving, giving up nothing. nothing. No, no change, change without, without struggle. struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. We'll be talking today about a book titled How the West Brought War to Ukraine, Understanding How U.S. and NATO Policies Led to Crisis, War, and the Risk of Nuclear Catastrophe. And uh, with me is the author of that book. And uh, Ben, I realized I forgot to ask you how to uh, pronounce your last name. Benjamin... Tell me what? Uh, uh, Abelo, but anything is fine. Okay. Benjamin Abelo, he has a BA in Modern European History from the University of Pennsylvania and an MD from the Yale School of Medicine, where he also held the position of lecturer in medicine. He previously worked in Washington, D.C., where he lobbied Congress, lectured, and wrote about nuclear arms policy. And um, thank you, Ben for joining us. I think um, I'd like to uncharacteristically start with um, just um, talking about how sensitive um, our topic is. It seems like on the war um, or, you know, the invasion of Russia into Ukraine and, and the war that um, followed and that is still going on, there's there seems to be um, really m- one-mindedness in this country, almost so. Um, and it seems like a lot of the left, too, has... Um, how to say it? No, maybe not bought into the um, general argument and, and feelings about it, but uh, there is a lot of support to Ukraine, which I think that uh, in many ways is justified. Of course, um, we don't support, or I don't support any country invading another country and trying to um, to take it over. But uh, it also is not critical. There's no thinking, not not much thinking about um, what uh, what brought um, what brought up this situation. And I want to read to you a um, comment that I got. Oops, things are not working well here but um anyway um when uh introducing what we'll be doing today um on facebook one person um wrote hogwash this is all about putting the um i can't think of what is how he said it but um so are you Pro-Putin, are you pro-Russia, are you anti-Ukraine, or if not, why did you write this book, and uh, why do you think it is important to discuss what you wrote about? Uh, Yeah, thanks. Um, I don't have any particular connection with uh, either Ukraine or Russia. Um, my primarily my primary approach to this is looking at this from the position of a U.S. citizen. Uh, I'm not a professional in the world of um, foreign policy either. I did work in Washington years ago, but then really moved into the study of medicine and writing on a medical topic and also writing about trauma. 
Um, but I became involved in this topic again when I saw the start of the war and I realized there was a chance of a direct U.S.-Russia confrontation, which, of course, could carry with it the risk of nuclear war. So I'm, I don't feel that I'm in favor of any particular party. I'm, my primary interest is in what is the best policy for the United States, but I also happen to think that that policy, which is best for the United States, is also the best policy for Ukraine and for the Ukrainian people and for uh, the global south, Europe, and for Russia as well. So I, I feel very unconflicted in the positions that I'm taking. Yeah, and, and I think that that's what's missing from the discussion, really, is um, the notion that engaging in peace talks, um, trying to end this war, is um, in every way possible so much um, more favorable than continuing the war. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I mean, the war is often pitched... Uh, as a humanitarian endeavor, and I see it as exactly the opposite. Um, I think it's leading to the needless death of uh, countless thousands of Ukrainians, uh, countless thousands of Russians too, of course, and it's really putting the whole world at risk of nuclear war, all unnecessarily. Um, this war could have been prevented easily, uh, I believe, and it could have been stopped also once it started but this was not the objective of the U.S. and of NATO, uh, and so the war continued. I can explain more what I mean by that Yeah, uh, let's, if, we, let's, if we want to go that way. Yeah, but. let's just uh, jump straight into that. That is what the book is about. Um, talk about the role of the United States and the West in um, basically making this war happen. Yeah, let me, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to just work backwards. I'll start with something that most people, I think, are not aware of, which is that in March 2022 and very early April, just weeks after the war started, there were three separate sets of negotiations going on between Ukraine and Russia to end the war. Uh, and in each case, it appears that the United States or the United States together with Great Britain uh, acted to uh, break up those negotiations and to continue the war. Uh, and then just within a week or two after those, all of those, were, uh, those talks were broken up, uh, Lloyd Austin, who was the Secretary of Defense, with Anthony Blinken standing at his side, stated that one of our objectives was to weaken Russia. And at that point, it became very clear that the U.S., when I say the U.S., I'm not, of course, speaking about the interests of the 340 million American citizens uh, for whom an end to this war would be the objective and the best outcome possible. I'm speaking about the interests or the perceived interests of a small foreign policy elite in Washington. In any case, with Blinken's statement uh, and Austin's statement, with Blinken at his side, it became clear that one of the U.S. objectives was to continue the war with the objective of weakening Russia. Um, so, uh, and I can go into the, the evidence for those talks, but just briefly, there's multiple sets of evidence that these talks were going on, including from a Ukrainian publication called Ukrainska Pravda, including from uh, Turkish authorities, Turkish, Turkey's a member of NATO, of course, including from the then prime minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, who was helping negotiate some of the talks and also from uh, Foreign Affairs uh, magazine, an article by Fiona Hill and uh, Angela Stent in September, October, 2022. Uh, and those writers are not uh, pacifists by any nature. They're actually often considered hawks with respect to Russia and with respect to Ukraine, the Ukraine war. So the fact that this information is coming from multiple sources and not simply from a bunch of uh, people who really don't have inside information is extremely telling that these talks really were going on. And in fact, it appears that there was actually a, um, a completed uh, preliminary document that had been initialed by both Russia and, the U and um, Ukraine, uh, but that those talks were broken off. Um, I can go back further in time into why the war didn't even need to start, but let me pause there and see yeah, let uh, me, where you want to um, go with it. Yeah, let me... <coughs> Sorry. 
just ask you uh, about your conversations with people who are or were involved with the military, people such as Chas Freeman, if you want to introduce who he is to our listeners and explain what he said, for example. Yeah, sure. Uh, w- one of the things that's been in some ways a pleasure and a very happy surprise for me is that uh, a number of real authorities um, uh, have endorsed my book. I mean, I contacted them, of course, so I was hoping for that. But uh, the extent to which this book has received endorsement from some very senior former officials in the U.S. government uh, has really been Im- impressive to me. And I think what happened really is that I end up essentially uh, reflecting or in some ways even channeling the views of a number of authorities who have been shut out of the mainstream conversation. So you mentioned Chaz Freeman. Uh, going back to early in his career, just to give people a sense of the depth of his experience, he was the primary interpreter on Richard Nixon's famous trip to China in the 1970s. Uh, he then was charged affairs, I believe, at the Beijing embassy. Uh, he was also uh, the ambassador to, um, uh, I think it was Thai- Thailand. He eventually became ambassador to Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War. And he was also Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs in the 1990s and actually helped establish the entire security structure of Europe after the uh, end of the Cold War. Uh, And Freeman was a strong endorser of this book. And he stated actually very early on in the war, having nothing to do with my book, that it looked to him like the U.S. was doing everything possible to prolong the war, uh, uh, willing to fight, as he described it, to the last Ukrainian for Ukrainian independence, uh, and uh, that it was doing everything it could to keep the war going. Uh, And this, of course, has turned out to be the case. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I have other in, in endorsers also. It's not Chaz Freeman is not an outlier. Um, Jack Matlack, who was the second to last ambassador to the Soviet Union, who uh, basically oversaw the negotiations with um, uh, between the U.S. and uh, Gorbachev in 1989 through 1991 that brought the Soviet Union to a close, uh, also endorsed the book. I have military experts who have endorsed the book. Uh, and others. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that when you say they endorse the book, um, you're not um, just telling us that um, other people liked it and that that's why we should read it. What you're saying, I think, is that they agree with what you, with the argument you make in the book. Yeah, they agree with the argument I made in the book. And in fact, uh, these are some people that I've also learned from. Uh, I I've, I've see them as real experts in the field, and they're some of the people whose writings and interviews I've studied uh, as I was helping to formulate my own views. Let me add also that it's not simply insiders or former insiders from the U.S. government or the military. It's also people on the left. So Noam, Ch- Noam Chomsky endorsed the book, yeah. and I actually put his endorsement on the cover because I think he's probably the best known uh, also, a man named um, uh, Christian Meta, who is a uh, an expert on the global South, on Asian policy. He's Indian, uh, who's also senior uh, uh, global official. He's a senior expert uh, at Yale University on some of these issues, and his particular expertise is on the global South. Is also an endorser of the book. Yeah, yeah. It it is so strange to me that uh, here it is already twelve twenty, and um, we we've been talking a little bit about what's in the book, but we also there's that need it seems to um, to justify um, critical thinking about what's going on, which is not what um, I usually feel like I need to do um, in in this show so let's let's get to uh, to the book and and to your arguments uh, but I just want to say before that that um, the continuing war endangers in a sense the whole world and not just uh, Ukraine 
and Russia, and uh, we saw part of it with the uh, breach or, or blowing up, we don't know exactly, of the Kachovka Dam and the tremendous um, damage that that has done to Ukraine currently, but Ukraine, of course, is a breadbasket to many parts of the world. So that means that most likely next year there will be much worse famine than we have already. That, together with climate change, um, can really spell a, a global, um, global catastrophe. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that's really extraordinary is that uh, it's not well covered in the U.S. media that really much of the world, except for the U.S. and Europe, is uh, against this war or at the very least ambivalent. Uh, the global south is against this war and there are peace efforts coming out of other countries, um, coming out of the BRICS countries, uh, coming out of Africa, in fact. Um, uh, yet the U.S. is persisting on this venture, uh, you know, pushing sanctions, pushing an ongoing war, uh, acting as if the entire world is behind it. And in fact, I think this war and the U.S. positions in this war have further alienated the U.S., uh, not simply in terms of the moral positions or the food security of other countries in the world, uh, but also, uh, very oddly, this is very much not in the U.S. interest in terms of maintaining the U.S. dollar as the global reserve and exchange currency, which is um, rapidly being lost. Uh, and the loss of that has been accelerated greatly by U.S. policies, uh, which are basically weaponizing the U.S. dollar. Uh, countries are increasingly recognizing that the extent to which they rely on the dollar as a reserve currency in their central banks uh, and as their exchange currency for buying oil and other products, uh, they feel now increasingly, why are we using the dollar? The, the U.S. is willing to take what really amounts to a worldwide kind of resource, uh, an exchange resource, the dollar, and weaponizing it for purposes that we don't even agree with. Um, and this is leading other countries to move much more rapidly towards trying to find substitutes for the U.S. dollar. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the sanctions that the United States uh, puts on, on various countries is part of that, too. But speaking of dollars, um, have you been able to follow how much American tax money has been spent on the war and how much of it on the military? I'm, I, I, I just see myself... Um, amazed uh, almost uh, every few days it seems like there's several billion more dollars that are given to mainly military uh, purposes um, for the war while we are told that there's no money to care for American uh, people. Yeah, that's another extraordinary aspect of this uh, which, and one of the things that's so extraordinary is that few so few people seem to be attentive to this. Uh, the U.S. Congress has so far allocated, uh, when last I checked, $113 billion, uh, a, a little over a tenth of a trillion dollars uh, for Ukraine. Now, out of that 113, which has been allocated, uh, somewhere around 40 to 45 has already been spent. And out of that, the majority is uh, military aid. Uh, although some of it is also being used just directly to support the Ukrainian government. I mean, the reality is right now that the Ukrainian government is completely on life support. They are uh, thoroughly bankrupt. And if the U.S. withdrew its support for the Ukrainian government, the salaries of all the senior officials in Ukraine would no longer be paid for. Hmm. Now, uh, some of this money is coming out of taxes. Some of it is going to increase the federal debt. And some of this will be paid for by the printing of new money, which will lead to inflation uh, in the U.S. I'm talking about, of course. So we really have uh, not only uh, siphoning away of money that could be used for many domestic purposes uh, within the U.S. in terms of governmental expenditures, could also be used by individuals to live their own lives as they choose. Uh, and it's also being used to 
expand the federal debt, which is going to have ongoing payments due on that in terms of interest payments for those people who hold the U.S. Treasury bills and bonds. Uh, and it's also going to lead to an additional uh, quantum of money printing, which itself can contribute to inflation uh, and will be reflected in the prices we pay at the supermarket, at the gas pump, and for rent. Yeah, yeah. And I also want to um, discuss, and, and you, have a, you have a little bit, but the threat of nuclear war and of, uh, for example, one of the things that Putin threatened is that if England, um, or that, that he might go against Britain with a radioactive tsunami from one of Russia's land attack nuclear torpedoes. And um, there's also that fear that uh, you mentioned that um, if it looks like Russia loses, he might just use nuclear weapons on Ukraine, possibly on... Um, NATO countries and what would be what what would that mean to this entire globe? Yeah, these are good points. This uh, question of the uh, threat about using a land attack nuclear uh, nuclear uh, torpedo against Britain was made very early in the war, and uh, I was pleased to see that Putin scaled back some of that rhetoric. Um, at the same time, I think the U.S. and people in the U.S. and certainly the media and government are making a very serious mistake when they discount all comments that come from Russia that have to do with this. We, we need to remember that Russia, that Ukraine is a right on Russia's border. And from Russia's point of view, this is an existential conflict that foreign powers, especially the United States, are waging right on Russia's border. And we need to keep in mind, how would the US react? Let's, let's envision a scenario where somehow relations between the U.S. and our northern border, Canada, became uh, damaged and that Canada then formed an alliance with Russia and that Russia then started placing military assets in Canada and practicing military uh, attacks on the U.S. Uh, from Canada. How would the U.S. react? In fact, uh, the U.S. would probably launch a war going into Canada to destroy those military assets. They would first make a demand. And I can describe some of the particular uh, NATO exercises that have occurred right on Russia's border well before this war started. So yeah. I think we need to take seriously the idea that this is a war from Russia's perspective is existential. Let me also flag one more thing before uh, you, you pick up again, which is that in January this year, 2023, the RAND Corporation, which is a U.S. military-funded think tank and is not uh, going to make such statements lightly, stated that the longer the war goes, the greater the risk of a direct U.S., Na direct Russia, NATO, or direct U.S. confrontation, and the greater the risk of nuclear war. And the, they state that it is not in the U.S. interest to have a prolonged war. Um, in fact, the title of this RAND Corporation report was Avoiding a Long War. And in that report, they stated, number one, that it is unlikely that Ukraine will be able to gain back significant territory. And number two, that the risk of nuclear war is real and that if even a single tactical nuclear weapon is used, the risk of escalation is very difficult to control or predict. Yeah. My guest is uh, Benjamin Ablo. He is the author of How the West Brought War to Ukraine, Understanding How U.S. and NATO Policies Led to Crisis, War, and the Risk of Nuclear Catastrophe. And uh, we will get now to uh, exactly that question of how the U.S. and NATO policies led to what is going on now. Um, I want to invite our listeners to join us if they have a... Um, a uh, relevant question or comment, 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can join us on social media, at World Talk on Twitter, or a public affair on Facebook. We do have a question for you. I, I just want to note it from Kevin. And uh, Kevin, I'm going to wait with your question 
a little bit uh, because I first want to um, see what got us here and then we will talk about what the U.S. should be doing and, and what the alternatives. So um, let's, let's talk um, about that, Ben. And I think our listeners probably have heard plenty that the expansion of, of NATO into the countries of Eastern Europe has contributed to tensions And uh, I think that's very important, but you make the argument that that is not all. So what else? What, what other things has the West done, has the United States done um, to, um, to, to bring us to where we're at now? Yeah, well, first of all, just to state it briefly, you're correct that the uh, expansion of NATO to Russia's border, this is the expansion of the most powerful military alliance that's ever existed in the history of the world, right up to Russia's border, carrying out military exercises, live fire rocket exercises right on Russia's border, uh, is an important contributor to this war. And Russia has tried many times to... Uh, cease this expansion of NATO, including in December 2021, uh, that the U.S. rejected these proposals uh, outright. But it's not only NATO expansion, because the U.S. and other countries have, outside of the NATO framework, formed military alliances uh, with Ukraine, uh, bilateral alliances, multilateral alliances, holding bilateral and multilateral military exercises right on Russia's border. That's been an important contributor. Um, the U.S. has also uh, unilaterally backed out of a number of very important arms control agreements. In 2002, the U.S. backed out of the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which was the foundation for all practically all arms control treaties. In uh, 2019, Uh, that was backed out of by uh, uh, George Bush, the younger. Uh, then in 2019, under Donald Trump, the U.S. backed out of the, what was refer what's referred to as the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, which uh, proscribed an entire category of U.S. Uh, of uh, uh, land-based nuclear weapons in Europe. Uh, uh, and this is very important. These are weapons that are near Russia, that are facing Russia uh, and that Russia perceives a direct threat from. All we need to do is think, how did the U.S. react when Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, decades ago in the early 1960s, uh, placed nuclear tip uh, rockets in Cuba? Uh, and we have been doing the same thing with respect to Russia now in terms of, uh, uh, we haven't placed any yet, but we backed out of this treaty And in fact, we've been placing anti-ballistic launchers in Romania and Poland. And those launchers, although currently arm armed only with anti-ballistic missiles, are also capable of firing nuclear-tipped Tomahawk cruise missiles, which have warheads of uh, up to 150 kilotons. That's about 10 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, so these are all contributors. Uh, one last contributor I'll mention Many Americans are not well aware that there has been a conflict, an actual war going on in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine since 2014. And the U.S., far from supporting peace negotiations to end that conflict, has actually done things that uh, impeded the resolution of that conflict. Uh, and as part of that, they have given support to the far right, we can call them fascist elements within Ukraine, which is a minority of the population, but because they are willing and able to use threats of violence and actual violence, have exerted a powerful veto over Ukrainian policy. In fact, uh, Zelensky came into office in 2019 with a specific stated purpose of making peace in the Donbass. Uh, yet within one week of his inauguration, his life was threatened Uh, and he was told that if he went ahead and made a settlement in the Donbass that involved any kind of autonomy for the ethnic Russians in the Donbass territories, which is what he was looking at, that he would be killed, uh, that he would hang from a tree. 
And gradually, Zelensky capitulated to these threats on his life and to threats on his government. So we have a certain idea here that we are supporting these wonderful forces of democracy in Ukraine, where in reality, we are doing things that uh, uh, we are supporting what I believe has amounted to a hijacking of Ukrainian policy by the Ukrainian far right, as well as interference in internal and foreign policy of Ukraine by the United States government for its own geostrategic purposes. Mm -hmm. And the armed faction of that uh, extreme right, basically fascist um, element in Ukraine was incorporated into the Ukrainian military and became kind of an elite um, unit. Is that correct? Uh, Yes. I mean, the particular person, the particular people who threatened his life, uh, I'm not sure that they were associated directly with the Azov Battalion, which is what you're referring to. Uh, The threat that I referred to came from a man named Dmitry Yarosh, who was one of the founders of the uh, right sector. Uh, There were other threats from other sources as well. but basically, these groups, uh, although they are formally independent of each other, they also are closely associated with in terms of ideology. So you have uh, a significant number of outright fascists. Some of these are neo-Nazis, some are not. But even the ones who are not have an ideology that uh, overlaps with that of what we can call generic fascism. Scholars sometimes refer to it as integral nationalism, uh, which is a super category, a supra category, which encompasses areas such as Nazism and Italian fascism. Uh, And this is really a very important. These are the people in Ukraine who are the lineage of a man named Stefan Bandera and who was the head of the uh, particular faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists in the 40s and later and also a man named uh, Roman Shukevich, who was the uh, head of a group called the uh, Ukrainian Insurgent Army. Uh, And these groups killed, uh, let's call it as a ballpark, 100,000 Poles and Jews committed mass murder in the 1940s. Uh, More Poles than Jews, in fact, Uh, but using murderous tactics. I mean, they, they killed whole families, gouged their eyes out. We're talking about civilians. Uh, that they accused of in some way collaborating with the uh, the Soviet forces. So that um, that would be after World War II. Yeah, after well, both during and after. Because the, I I know uh, that the, the, during the Ukrainians were um, <clears throat> well known for their support for the SS for the Nazis, basically. Yeah, the uh, the Bandera faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists were active collaborators with the Nazis starting in 1941. In 1943, when it became clear that the Nazis were not going to win and that the Soviets were going to beat them, at that point, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists uh, started to dissociate themselves, at least formally, from the Nazis uh, and began to focus their attacks more directly on the Soviet Union. Um, uh, Most of the killing that took place at the hands of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists and the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, which is basically the military wing of the Bandera faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, took place between 1941, uh, starting under the Nazis, uh, and continued on till around 1944, I believe, is when that stopped. Uh, well, it didn't stop, but began to slow down more. Um, those who want to read somewhat more about some of this, there's an excellent book out by a Ukrainian-Canadian scholar named John Paul Himka uh, uh, called um, uh, The Ukrainian Nationalist and the Holocaust. Uh, He's not Jewish, but uh, he's done extraordinary work uh, trying to understand better. This is a somewhat scholarly work for those who are looking for a light read. It might not be what they want, (laughs) but um, this is nonetheless an excellent book to uh, start, uh, even if you just read the introduction. Yeah. So um, you say also that um, NATO, and I'm I'm just trying to understand if that 
relates to what we've already talked about or to something else, helped uh, lay the groundwork for and may have directly instigated an armed far-right coup in Ukraine, which replaced a democratically elected poor Russian government with an unelected poor Western one. Is that is that a different thing that you're talking about? Uh, di- different from what? Different from what we just discussed, the uh, threats on the Lansky and so, so on? Oh, uh, it, it's, it's related um, because there was a government that was in power from uh, 2010 until 2014, a man named Yanukovych, who, like all the Ukrainian leaders, uh, was corrupt. Uh, he may have been more corrupt than some of the others. Uh, and at the very least, he was extravagant in his corruption. He built uh, palaces for himself and things of this nature that were extremely visible. In any case, there were protests against him uh, in 2014, uh, st- actually starting in late 2013, uh, some the so-called Maidan protests or the Maidan revolution, sometimes called the Revolution of Dignity. Uh, and the reality was there was a, uh, a, f- a faction within the Ukrainian population uh, it was not the majority, but it was probably a good-sized plurality that was in favor of these protests. Uh, but those protests, which started off as popular demonstrations against the corruption of Yanukovych and against the failure of Yanukovych to sign an association agreement with the European Union, were uh, to a large extent uh, taken over by the Ukrainian far right or uh, if not actually taken over, we can say that that faction turned the protests violent and eventually turned into a violent far-right coup that overthrew the Yanukovych governments with threats of assassination for Yanukovych. Uh, and in fact, uh, some of your listeners may be aware that in, uh, on February 20th, 2014, there was a mass killing of uh, Ukrainian protesters, those who were protesting against Yanukovych. Uh, And the actual numbers are not completely clear, but probably about 45 uh, Ukrainian protesters were killed uh, with dozens and dozens more injured. And this has been said to be, have been an attack carried out by Yanukovych's government. However, the very best research that's now been carried out on this also by a Canadian-Ukrainian scholar, Ivan Kachanovsky, who himself grew up in Western Ukraine and studied in uh, Kiev, uh, has demonstrated that, in fact, this was a false flag attack carried out by the Ukrainian far right, killing innocent Ukrainian protesters, peaceful protesters, in order to create chaos and an illusion that this was carried out by Yanukovych. And in fact, it was this misunderstanding of the nature of this so-called, quote unquote, sniper's massacre of February 20th, 2014, that led to the recognition by Western governments of the new government that took over in 2014. Now, that new government uh, initially was packed with members of the far right. That's no longer the case, although the far right still maintains what I call a coercive veto over Ukrainian policy. And this has been well recognized that if Ukraine now, if Zelensky tried to negotiate a peaceful end to this war with Russia, uh, that he would be overthrown and his life would be at risk. And certainly there are Ukrainian citizens, and I've been in, in indirect touch with some, who are very afraid of speaking out against current Ukrainian policies because they know that they are subject to arrest and perhaps execution by the Ukrainian far right through extra governmental forces. Mm-hmm. And how is the United States or, or the NATO countries, how are they related to all of that? Well, uh, the U.S. and NATO countries immediately recognized this uh, post-Maidan government. Uh, the, they recognized the overthrow of the Yanukovych government, and they recognized the unconstitutional vote that took place in the Ukrainian parliament. Uh, but most immediately, I would say the Western powers are responsible for uh, failing to negotiate a, uh, an end to this war. Uh, to give one example... And this was reported in the Ukrainian publication, Ukrainska Pravda, 
This is not the old Russian Pravda. Pravda means truth, and Ukrainian and Russian languages are similar. This is the Ukrainian publication, Ukrainska Pravda, reported that uh, the U.S., uh, the, I'm sorry, that Ukraine and Russia were negotiating for peace, uh, but then Boris Johnson, who was then Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, showed up for a surprise visit in Ukraine and told Zelensky, uh, this is... Uh, in early in uh, late March and early April 2022, just after the war started, he said, "You may be ready for peace, but we, the collective West, are not." Uh, and he stated that the Western powers would not be involved in any security guarantees for Ukraine. This was part of the terms of the negotiation that was being reached with Putin. Uh, and then, as a result of that, Ukraine withdrew from these peace negotiations. Uh, so what we see in Europe now is not only uh, doubling down on the expansion of NATO with new countries entering NATO, but a complete buying into the narrative which originated in Washington and Brussels out of NATO and out of the European Union headquarters that Putin is the new Hitler and that he launched this war in order to expand territory, either to form a, a new uh, Soviet uh, empire or a new Tsarist empire, or that he was the new Hitler seeking new Lebensraum. And this is all crazy. This is all has nothing to do with it. Uh, in fact, there have been academic studies that have been done looking at, uh, at the evidence. And uh, one very interesting one in the Journal of Military and Strategic Affairs, uh, uh, published by a, uh, an Irish scholar, uh, Jeffrey Roberts basically showed that analyzing Putin's statements over the last nine months, that it was very clear that Putin, correctly or incorrectly, perceived an a growing existential threat from NATO and other military powers on his borders, and that he launched this war in what he perceived to be a necessary protective step for Russia. Now, I don't agree with those formulations because I don't believe that NATO was planning to or would have launched a war against Russia. But we have to look at this from the perspective of how it looks to other countries. Uh, and as I said, I think one way we can gain some insight into that is looking at how the U.S. might respond if, for example, Russia or China formed a military alliance on the U.S. border with Canada or with Mexico. Yeah. Um, well, we have a caller with um, a question. Steve, uh, you're on the air. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Avalo, at the time of Germany's reunification in 1990, there was an implicit agreement not to expand NATO. To whom in the Clinton years do we assign blame for the breakdown of that arrangement? Thank you, Esty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as this caller states correctly, there's, uh, although it was never instantiated in written form in formal treaties, there were a plethora of promises or as sometimes called assurances that were given to uh, Gorbachev and other members of the Soviet uh, power at that point that in exchange for the Soviet Union removing 400,000 troops from East Germany uh, and thereby allowing the east and west halves of Germany to unify under NATO auspices. auspices. In response for that, uh, the Western powers would not expand NATO towards Russia's border. Uh, and in fact, since then, they've expanded uh, about a thousand miles to Russia's border in violation of those assurances. Um, the earliest decisions to do this were carried out by uh, uh, Clinton, uh, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, at that point, a uh, very important um, uh, supporter of his was Strobe Talbot. I'm sorry, Strobe Talbot was, uh, I believe he was secretary of, uh, actually, I'm forgetting his formal position, but played a very important role as advisor. And uh, it later became clear that one of the most important reasons that the U.S. violated these assurances was that uh, in Clinton's bid for the presidency, he needed the support of East European voters in the U.S. And he was very concerned that they would vote against him if he did not expand NATO into some of the East European countries. Um, there was also pressure from the Republican Party 
that uh, Clinton was not being hawkish enough with respect to the Soviet Union, uh, or at that point it was Russia. Um, so uh, it was a number of uh, uh, individuals, uh, first Clinton, and then uh, moving on into the Bush administration after that. Um, so um, you have a whole chapter about um, how U.S. foreign policy experts publicly warned that NATO expansion would lead to disaster. Can you share some of that with, that and, uh, with us? And I want to make sure that we um, give time to uh, Kevin's question, which is also, I think, the most important question that we have in front of us is... Um, what is the alternative and what should the U.S. be doing? Um, so let's, let's um, tackle both of these questions. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll uh, try to keep the first one very brief, but if I go too long and you see time being cut, please jump in. Okay. Um, uh, there have been many, many statements by some of the greatest authorities in U.S. statesmanship and defense areas uh, starting in the late 1990s, before the first tranche of NATO expansion, which occurred in 1999, that this would be a massive disaster of, of American foreign policy if the U.S. Uh, tried to expand NATO. Uh, so perhaps the best known individual was uh, George F. Kennan, who is best known, uh, he later became the ambassador to the Soviet Union, but in the late 1940s, he penned a number of documents that went to the U.S. State Department. Uh, Cannon, by the way, was the framer of the U.S. policy of containing, quote unquote, the Soviet Union. Uh, and he stated that the expansion to NATO of NATO would be the worst foreign policy disaster of the entire post-Cold War period, and that it would not only antagonize and uh, create conflict with Russia, where none need exist, but it would actually radicalize the nationalist forces within Russia and empower them against the liberalizing forces within Russia. Uh, that same, that was 1997 and 1998. That same year, there was an open letter uh, of 40 eminent experts in the U.S., including some of the strongest military hawks in U.S. academia and uh, government, uh, stating likewise that this would be a massive disaster that would have all these adverse effects. Uh, then in 2008, uh, William Burns, who was then ambassador to, the, to uh, Russia and, and is now the head of Mr. Biden's CIA, stated that the attempt to bring, uh, this was again in cables to the State Department, stated that the attempt to bring Ukraine into NATO would be a red line for Russia. And uh, subsequently, it became clear that around that same time, the US National Intelligence Council uh, had concluded that if the US and NATO tried to bring Ukraine into NATO, that it is very likely that Russia would uh, invade Crimea and actually invade all of Ukraine. Uh, this, was a st this was the view of the U.S. National Intelligence Council as early as 2007 or very early 2008. That is seven years before the Russian invasion of Crimea and uh, roughly 14 or 15 years, if I can count quickly, before the actual invasion of Russia. These were predicted of, of as a real possibility uh, that early if NATO tried to bring in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, let me let me ask you, Ben, to go on to the question of what should be done and what can be done um, to to resolve this uh, very, very dangerous conflict. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what I think should be done, uh, whether there's how much hope there is that this will be done uh, unless the population of the U.S. starts understanding what's actually happening and what the actual costs and risks to both them and Ukraine are, uh, if that happens, then this actually may happen. Uh, but uh, the uh, solution, I believe, would be an immediately negotiated ceasefire, followed by the establishment of a demarcation zone, 
just to make up a number, 10 or 15 miles of non-engagement between Ukrainian and Russian forces, followed by a negotiated settlement. Uh, and we should be clear that Ukraine is unlikely to gain back all of its territory through such a negotiation. That could have been attained, uh, and Ukraine could have attained all of its property other than Crimea if those negotiations of March 2022 had been allowed to go through. Uh, but now the situation is less good. But at the very least, we can reduce the risk of nuclear war and reduce the further destruction of Ukraine through a negotiated settlement. Now, this, of course, would require that Russia agree to such things, but they have stated from the beginning that they are open to this as long as the question of NATO expansion is on the table. Uh, so at the very least, the U.S. needs to try this and NATO needs to try this. And I think there's every reason to think it could be successful. But this will require a very active electorate in the U.S. to peacefully but very strongly make its decision known that this war needs to be brought to a conclusion. Yeah. Um, so very quickly, um, you write, finally, we must ask what would happen if the war dragged on to the point where opposition to Mr. Putin within Russian elites led to his removal from power. And we saw that almost happening last weekend. Um, if you can give us a two minute comment on what happened, what what do you think happened and what does happen if uh, Putin is removed from power? Uh, yes, as, as everyone knows, there's a group called the Wagner Military Group, PMC, Private Military Company, uh, that was basically doing contract work for the Russian government and fought the war in uh, Bakhmut. Um, uh, their leader, a man named Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, uh, has been somewhat of a loose cannon for months and has been very critical of elements of the Russian uh, military leadership. Um, and uh, last week, what he did was he took a fraction, about a quarter of the uh, Wagner group, and he marched uh, towards uh, uh, first a Russian city with a population of about a million, and then a fraction of that group started marching toward Moscow. And uh, just demand... then we have less than a minute. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah. In any case, uh, it's unclear about what his actual objectives were. He appears to have wanted the Secretary of Defense and the General Chief of Staff uh, removed. Uh, and it became clear also that he was probably going to be wiped out by a combination of Russian special forces and Chechen special forces operating under Russian uh, military command. Uh, so he is now in... Uh, in uh, uh, Belarus. Uh, this seems to be over. The extent to which this was an actual threat on the Russian regime, I think, is unclear. For now, things seem to be stable. But the great danger of this, we need to keep in mind, Russia is a country with 6,000 nuclear weapons. Do you really want a country like Russia to lose control of its military leadership with uncertain consequences in terms of how those weapons would be controlled and how they might be used? Uh, it's extremely foolish and a wild roll of the dice to want the Russian leadership to be overturned by either Prigozhin or by any other means of regime change. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Benjamin Ablo, the author of How the West Brought War to Ukraine, Understanding How U.S. and NATO Policies Led to Crisis, War, and the Risk of Nuclear Catastrophe. Appreciate you joining us today. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to Summer and Shelly and Patty. I'm STD Noor. We'll be talking again next week. Stay tuned for the funny boys. Bye-bye.